Hello, this is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs of Atid and the Web Yeshiva with another installment of our Jewish Educators Book Club podcast. My guest this time is David Edmonds. David is the co-host of the very interesting, very engaging, always enlightening Philosophy Bites podcast. I've been a long-time listener uh, and student of the folks at Philosophy Bites, and I recommend that you check it out, too. Their website is philosophybites.com, where you can find them through iTunes. He's also the author, most recently, of Would You Kill the Fat Man? The Trolley Problem and What Your Answer Tells Us About Right and Wrong from Princeton University Press. And that's the book we're discussing today. David is a fellow uh, a senior research associate at Oxford University's Center for Practical Ethics. And welcome welcome to our podcast, uh, 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 David. I want to talk about the trolley problem. The trolley problem may be known to, to our listeners in, in one form or another. And the truth is that those of us that toil in the field of Jewish education and Jewish learning and Jewish studies will find various Talmudic antecedents to these kinds of what I'll call larger lifeboat ethics, even though that might be an imprecise uh, catchphrase for, for, for the specific issues that you're dealing with in your book. But our listeners are probably familiar with the, the, the passage in the Gemara in Bava Metzia that talks about two people walking alone in the desert and there's not enough water for both of them to survive and get to, get to civilization where they'll be able to live. And there's a debate within the Talmud as to whether they should split the water, consigning both of them to death, because there's not enough water for them both to survive, or whether one person, the one who is in possession of the canteen, should drink the whole thing and survive. We're probably also familiar with a similar passage in Masechet Sanhedrin that deals with a question of, well, I'll put it into kind of contemporary phraseology, a kind of thought experiment. And your book deals largely with these kinds of philosophical thought experiments. Mr. A puts a gun to Mr. B's head. Of course, the Talmud didn't know about guns. I'm modernizing the problem. Mr. A puts a gun to Mr. B's head and tells him to kill Mr. C, or he, A, will kill Mr. B. What is poor Mr. B to do? Should he kill Mr. C and save his own life, or should he have to sacrifice himself in order not to violate the the, the very severe, most severe a sin, uh, causing a bloodshed to his own hands. And the Gemara concludes that he's not able to do that, for after all, is his blood any redder than Mr. C's blood? Uh, is his life any more precious than someone else's? Uh, these types of thought experiments are, are, are just that. They're ways of sharpening values, of clarifying principles, and unfortunately in our in our own day, uh, not in our own day, in our own past century, uh, the events, let's say, of the Holocaust brought some of these thought experiments into actual reality, and uh, mankind was faced with all types of of, uh, of problems. Before we turn our attention to the specific uh, issue uh, or set of problems that you're exploring in your your very engaging book, it's a it's a very uh, serious philosophical work but it is presented in a very engaging and readable uh, uh, manner, trying to convey the complexities of philosophical reasoning 
and thinking to the the uh, the average reader, uh, and that's why I think it's significant uh, to to our listeners. Um, tell us a little bit about how you became interested in in uh, in the problem of uh, of the of the trolley and how uh, you see the role of this type of thinking and reasoning and the thought experiment and what it has to say to to contemporary readers who aren't, after all, confronted with the trolley problem. And just by way of introduction, let's remind everybody what the trolley problem is before I turn it over to you. And this is the way you explain it in the book. You're standing by the side of a track when you see a runaway train hurtling toward you. Clearly, the brakes have failed. Ahead are five people tied to the track. If you do nothing, the five will be run over and killed. Luckily, you're next to a switch. Turning this switch will send the out-of-control train down a side track, a spur, just ahead of you. Alas, there's a snag. On the spur, you spot one person tied to the track. Changing direction will inevitably result in this person being killed. What should you do? Act passive and allow five people to be killed? Or become involved and, through your own action, cause the death of the one fellow on on the spur. So I turn it over to you, David. Explain to us the value of thinking of these interesting but bizarre scenarios. Yeah, so they are bizarre scenarios. And the trolley problem, the first one that you've just mentioned, goes all the way back now to 1967. And a woman called Philippa Foote, who was an Oxford philosopher, who came up with this problem and wondered what you should do in that scenario where the train is running out of control and five people are going to be killed unless you turn the train and kill the one. She was British, of course, so it wasn't a trolley in those days, it was a but uh, it got taken over by an American philosopher called Judith Jarvis Thompson in the 1980s, and she changed it from a train to an American trolley. And it's become jokingly referred to now as trolleyology. There are numerous of these types of trolley scenarios, and together they've been given this umbrella term, trolleyology. Now, to go back to the puzzle that you mentioned, what Philippa Foote was interested in was the difference between that case, where the train is running out of control and it's going to kill the five unless you turn it to kill the one, and a thought experiment that had been well known in the literature and had been discussed by various philosophers, which was a thought experiment involving a hospital. And it's imagined that there were five people in the hospital who were desperately ill. Two of them needed lung transplants, two of them needed kidney transplants, one of them needed a heart transplant. They looked like they were all going to die unless they got those transplants very, very quickly. A sixth person walks into the hospital. This sixth person, let's say, has a pretty minor ailment and the doctors could immediately sort it out and the patient could go home uh, completely fixed and, uh, and, and have a happy rest of his life. Uh, but there is an alternative option for the doctor. They could bump this sixth person off and take... The, harvest his organs. Harvest his organs, take his lungs and his kidneys and his heart and save the five lives, the five people who are desperately in need of organs. Uh, now, when we think about that, I don't know 
what what is your reaction? Let me ask you. What do you think about uh, about that when I when I present that scenario to you? I mean, I think on all levels, uh, you know, intuitively, morally, uh, religiously, we would be opposed to such a thing. Uh, even though from a purely utilitarian point of view, you might say that the lives of five should outweigh the life of one. But yet we, we, should not, we should not obligate or impose on that one person to sacrifice himself in order to save the five. Right. So your intuition there chimes with the intuitions of almost everybody who's asked about this. So 90% of people roughly, will say just what you've said, that it would be an appalling thing to do to take the life of that healthy patient to save the five lives. So this was a great puzzle for Philippa Foote because in the first scenario that you mentioned, it looks like it's acceptable to turn the train, or rather almost everybody thinks it's acceptable to turn the train to save the five lives to kill the one in the train case. I don't know if that's your intuition, but that, that ten, turns out to be the intuition of almost everybody, philosophers and non-philosophers alike. And yet, almost everybody thinks, as you think, that it would be wrong to kill the uh, one person in the hospital to save the five people who are desperately in need of organs. So what? Even, for, even though from an objective kind of point of view, the cases are parallel, but in reality, we have a visceral uh, uh, reaction in one which would not allow us to undertake the, the harvesting of the organs. But in the train case, because the flipper of the switch is far more removed, most people would flip the switch, well, that, would pull, pull the switch. Well, you're, giving, you're attempting to give an explanation what, as to why we respond so differently to those two cases. You say objectively they're the same. Well, that's precisely what's at stake. Precisely the question is, are they objectively the same? Are those two cases the same? They're obviously the same in one, uh, 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 there's, there's, in one regard. They're the same in that uh, in both cases you've got five lives uh, as and opposed what? to one life. So in that sense, they're objectively the same. But are they morally the same? That's the question. And so the point of my book is to describe this puzzle. And it's been really a 50-year, like a philosophical crime novel, trying to work out, well, what is the difference between those two cases? So, the eponymous fat man in my book... The, uh, the, second, the second scenario. The second scenario is, is parallel to the hospital one. So, Judith Jarvis Thompson, the American philosopher that I mentioned, she imagined that the train was once again out of control, its brakes had failed, it was heading down the track, and it was going to kill five people who were tied to the track if you did nothing. Once again, you have an option to do something, though. There is a way of saving them. This time you're standing on a footbridge. You're standing next to a very fat man. Uh, let's say the fat man is leaning over the footbridge. You can give him a gentle shove, or indeed a, a heavy shove. In any case, you can push him over the footbridge. He will splatter onto the track below, and his sheer bulk will prevent the train from hitting the five people on the track. Of course, he will die but the five lives will be saved. And the question again is, would you push the fat man? And Judith Jarvis Thompson said, uh, I think quite rightly, that this is parallel to the hospital case, that most people think that it would be quite wrong to push the fat man. We know that she was right about that, because subsequently there have been numerous tests, uh, probably literally hundreds of thousands, if not more, have taken various kind of moral 
tests which you can take on the internet which test their intuitions, and we know that she, her intuitions... People will not do it. They won't do it. Very few people will do it. But 90% of people think it's quite wrong to push for fat man, and the question is, why? Why is it wrong, if it is wrong, to push for fat man when it doesn't seem to be wrong to turn the train in the first place? Now, I'll just say one more thing before you, you, you come back to me. You said, well, maybe they're objectively the same. Maybe it's, you were implying, maybe it's just squeamishness. Maybe it's just that, in the first case, all you're doing is turning a switch. Whereas in the second case, you're using your body, you're physically pushing somebody over. And maybe we don't want to do that. Maybe we're scared, maybe we don't want the physical contact. Now, that might be right, although interestingly, that of course is not a philosophical objection to, to pushing the fat man. That's just a kind of, that's a kind of yuck reaction, that's an evolutionary reaction, or that's, right. that's a kind of physiological reaction. That, that's not a rational explanation. You're just saying, we just, as it happens, don't want physical contact. Um, well, they've tested this, and they've, they've looked at whether it is indeed that which is, pushing, which is deterring people from pushing the fat man. And one way they've done that is to imagine a third scenario. I told you there were numerous scenarios in trolleyology. <coughs> the book so, I should mention, the, the book has, has these very uh, charming uh, uh, illustrations, these uh, cartoonish illustrations. To, to, to capture the essence of each of the, the ten different uh, scenarios that are under discussion. And, and in that sense, uh, certainly for the educators uh, that are listening to us that might uh, be using uh, some of this uh, type of thinking and, and, uh, and, uh, and, these, and these, um, these cases you know, in their classrooms, these would be very useful uh, to their work. Yes, I had to work with the illustration. I had to keep persuading him to make the fat man fatter to make it quite clear what was going on and when the fat man could stop the train and so on. Um, so, in one of these scenarios, what they've done is they've asked people to imagine that once again the train is out of control, once again it's going to kill five people, uh, once again there's a fat man on the footbridge. But this time you're not standing next to the fat man, you're standing by the side of the track. And this time, as in the very first scenario, all you need to do is turn a little switch. And what the switch does in this scenario is it opens a trap door. And the fat man comes well, through, the through the trap door and lands on the track. And the train hits the fat man, kills the fat man, but the fat man saves the five people. Now, of course, what's interesting about this is that it gets round your squeamishness problem because there's no physical contact. You're, it's exactly the same. Pressing the switch. button. You're just pressing the button. And... What they have found is that that does seem to explain some of people's reluctance to push the fat man. So people are more willing to drop the fat man through the trap door than they are to push the fat man over the footbridge. Nonetheless, it only explains a part of the difference between that and the first case. People still think it's wrong to kill the fat man. So your psychological explanation goes some way to explain the difference but only a very small way. And I, I argue in the book that there's actually a deep philosophical, moral distinction between those cases. Right. I should also mention, just we should mention parenthetically, the reason the fat man has to be so fat is for the purposes of the experiment, we presume that the, however fat he is, he's fatter than whoever the subject of the question is. 
And there's the difference. There's the rub that he's large enough to arrest the motion of the train. Uh, but if the person to whom the question is posed were to say, well, I'll just I'll sacrifice myself. I'll jump overboard and stop the train. No, unfortunately, no matter how large you are, you're too slim to, to get the job done. That's, that's exactly right. That's a very, very important point, because the moral thing to do, clearly, is if five people are threatened, is to sacrifice yourself, if you can, and to jump over that footbridge or to prostrate yourself in front of the track to stop the train from killing the five people. But you can't do that, because you won't stop the train. You're not bulky enough. And that's why it's, it's not being fattest. <laughs> Um, the fat man has to be fat. That's how it only works if the fat man is, is, is fatter than you are. Right. Now, the book explores uh, 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 maybe uh, 1,200, 1,500 years of philosophical thought. Um, uh, you go back to Aquinas, um, Thomas Aquinas, um, and questions of double causation, what I'll add just a footnote to some of our listeners, what we might think of in the halachic phraseology of psigratia, of double causation, uh, uh, which may affect the way we view things. And then you take it all the way up to modern-day questions of scientific and neurological examination, uh, putting someone through the trolley scenario while they're in an MRI and seeing which parts of the brain are firing and what's at control. So throughout the, the whole history of running this problem back and looking for precedents in science and in moral thought and in philosophy, how, how do you see that it's evolved over time? And in our day, when we're inclined to look at everything through the scientific mind, through the experimental mind, through the the computerized mind, the ability to test which neurons are firing, do you find that that enhances our ability to think about these problems in a way which shed light on our moral reasoning that serve a didactic purpose to help us sharpen our who, who we are as a, as a species and try to get at a more moral core? Or do you see the opposite? There's the fundamental distinction which was first drawn by David Hume back in the 18th century, basically between facts and values. And Hume's claim was that to draw values from facts was to commit what he called a naturalistic fallacy. Mm-hmm. That you couldn't come up to any normative judgments from brute facts. Uh, if he's right, then all this new science, which looks into our brain and works out which bits of the brain are being utilised when we think about these trolley problems, if he's right, they don't give us any extra evidence for how we should conclude we should respond morally. Uh, I think it's the most interesting question in philosophy in the 21st century now, how we try and embrace what we're learning about the brain, what we're learning about consciousness, what we're learning about which bits of the brain do what, how that feeds back in, if at all, to normative questions. Let me just give you one example. It turns out that 
there are a higher percentage of certified psychopaths who will push the fat man than, as it were, ordinary folk. Psychopaths are more likely to kill the fat man than ordinary folk. Now, what does that tell us? Does that tell us anything at all? Does it tell us that maybe um, because they're not using an emotional part of the brain that we're using, right. that maybe they're less squeamish and they're coming up with the right answers? Or does it tell us the opposite? Does it tell us exact opposite. That, well, if they're psychopaths, and psychopaths tend to come up with the wrong answer for many things, well, maybe they've come up with the wrong answer to the fat man question. Right. So this is a really, really tough puzzle that I think philosophers are going to have to think a lot about over the next few years. Mm -hmm. um, you asked about the, the science. I'm very interested in the science. Indeed, one reason I wrote the book was because my background is in philosophy, and this philosophical problem I mentioned goes back half a century. But the really dramatic development in trolleology has been in the last decade with advances in psychology, with advances in neuroscience. There's also a whole chapter I have in the book comparing trolleology to the linguistic yeah. philosopher Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky argues that all languages, whether it be English or Hebrew or Finnish, share a deep... Uh, have to have some deep common. structure. They have to have some deep structure, which explains why children are able to learn them so quickly. Right. And these trolley problems are used to argue that perhaps human beings share a deep moral grammar as well. Right. That if you ask these trolley questions to people in different parts of the world, if you ask rich or poor people, if you ask educated or uneducated, if you ask men or women, um, people will more or less come up with the same answers. Uh, and so perhaps we've got some deep moral grammar in the same way that our brains are so configured to have a deep linguistic grammar. Um, so these are fascinating new insights into the body problems. Let me, let me ask you, uh, these... These kinds of questions, the kinds of things that, uh, you know, anybody that spent any time sitting in university, uh, in a university dormitory late at night, perhaps in the presence of a beer, thinking over these types of questions and puzzles, youngsters that go off maybe to a weekend seminar and are exposed to these kinds of questions and puzzles, how do you see them to what degree are they useful tools? To what degree are they effective, uh, didactive spurs to thinking and reasoning and moral development? How can they be best used within an educational setting, either formal education or informal? And then uh, maybe a larger question, what do you see as the, the purposes and the challenges of philosophical study in, let's say, secondary education, in high school education today, is it, is it still something that has force, that can be used, that is used effectively or is used ineffectively? How might it be improved? Okay, let me answer those one by one. So your first question was basically, are these thought experiments useful? <laughs> and. Yeah. Um, they're always entertaining and engaging, yeah, yeah. but are they useful pedagogically? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they're useful 
pedagogically and on a number of different levels. I mean, I would say that because I've written a whole book about them. <laughs> if I didn't believe in them, then I, I wouldn't be writing about them. But I also have a chapter on the book, as it were, condemning them and, and the, critique. the critique of it. And, and the main critique is... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. The main critique is we can read nothing from these. They're just thought experiments. They're abstract. They're ethereal. They tell us nothing about the real world. The main defense of them, I think, is that thought experiments offer a cleaned up version of the real world. And for that reason, they're very useful. The real world is very messy. When you come up with a real world dilemma, any dilemma you come up with, it will have a thousand different aspects to it that will be affecting your intuitions one way or the other. Um, the point about these thought experiments is by making them hypothetical, you can abstract all sorts of elements out of them so that you're left with a pure distinction between two thought experiments. And then you can see what's doing the work. So when you're talking about these trolley examples, you're trying to work out, well, what's the difference between trolley example one and trolley example two? You say, for example, well, maybe it's your, you're squeamish. You don't want to push the fat man. You don't physically want to touch him. So then you come up with another trolley example where you don't have to touch him, you just have to turn the switch and he falls with a trap door. And then you can test whether your intuition remains the same. So the beauty of these thought experiments is that they offer a cleaned up, um, cleaned up scenarios in what otherwise is a very messy world. And they help us to think more clearly about moral problems. Your second bigger question was, what is the role, I guess, of philosophy in secondary education? Um, I mean, again, I would say this, wouldn't I? Because uh, philosophy is, is what I do and what I love. And I think there are some people who are naturally drawn to philosophy, and I'm obviously one of them. And I often come across people who say, oh, philosophy is just a waste of time, it's abstract, it doesn't deal with the real world. And I'm always very, very puzzled by that, because here we are on this planet, we sort of, you know, a product of a sperm and an egg, this kind of random creations, and we're here, we don't know what we're doing here, we don't know whether... Uh, how we should behave, we don't know what kind of lives we should be living, we don't know what's important in life, we're going to die, we need to think about whether that's the end, whether there's not... And it strikes me as amazing that people aren't philosophical in their outlook, that people just get on with their lives and don't think philosophically. I, I, it, it, I, it, it's just not... I, I, I can't understand it. It's not the way I'm disposed to be. Uh, but I think philosophy can sharpen... Uh, one's analytic tools in every other discipline. So philosophy is just a, basically a way of thinking clearly, of using reason, of thinking cogently, of thinking logically, of spotting inconsistencies, of spotting bad arguments. I think it's also the case, actually, that pretty much every other discipline, at a meta level, collapses into a kind of philosophy. So if you're dealing with history, you're dealing with cause and effect. You want to know whether the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand caused World War One. Well, you have to have some idea of what counts as cause and effect. What is a cause? What is an effect? What is it, what is it for one thing to cause another? Uh, I mean, if you, even if you're talking about literature, you, you, you might ask the question, um, I don't know, you think of your, your, your favourite 
character in literature, or any character in literature, what was what was Sherlock Holmes intending to do? It's a kind of odd question to ask about a fictional character. Um, does a fictional character have a life outside the intention of the author, for example? Right. It's a philosophical question. Does it make sense to, to say that the that you could be right about a, a fictional character and a fictional character's motives um, and you can trump the author's intentions. Well, I think it probably does. Um, I think um, sometimes a reader can give a better explanation of a book than the author. Than the author can. But that's a very philosophical question. So I, I think at a meta level, almost every other discipline collapses into philosophy. So my answer is definitely philosophy can help at a number of levels in education. Right. right. The um, part of the book revolves around the the old dichotomy between between reason and emotion, between the arch utilitarian uh, school of philosophy uh, versus you know which would look at everything in, a, in these kinds of experiments in a kind of mathematical. You know, it's, it, it makes little difference whether you have to push the man or all you have to do is press a button. Uh, if it's five versus one, save the five, versus the more uh, emotional, what you call the yuck factor, the degree to which we have that strong emotional uh, 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 opposition to taking a, a certain act. And that's uh, an interesting question because in the abstract many people who don't have a strong identification with one or the other tradition might lean towards the utilitarian, might lead towards a, the rational. But in reality, decisions get factored through the emotional realm. I think there's actually part of the part of the, the, the charm and the wit of the book, uh, uh, and, and you're, you're really just a very engaging uh, writer on, on this level, uh, are, you, know, you have many, very many references to popular culture and other things. I'm pretty sure I recall you have a reference to the Spock-Kirk uh, uh, dichotomy on this, uh, on this matter, I, I, I think. Um, the tension between, between reason and, uh, and emotion. And I think part of the the um, the strength of you know running through these scenarios and running through these things is that it really causes the the reader causes somebody that's engaging with these problems to filter it through the degree to which we really are still that chariot pulled by these two horses of of reason and emotion of utilitarianism and 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 uh, and something much more messy um, and that's something that it's it's worthwhile to uh, to sharpen in ourselves yes I think uh, you, you've given a very good description but I'd quibble with just one thing there so there's a lot of psychology now about these two processes of thinking the calculating side and the emotional side but to depict the philosophy that way is to be to come to a conclusion, really, which a conclusion I suspect you don't want to come to, which is that the, it's the utilitarian side of things, which is the rational side of things. Well, most people, and most philosophers too, are not utilitarian. So they don't think that life simply is 
about calculating five lives on the one hand and one life on the other. And their criticism is not that what's going on is that there's just emotion at stake, because that sounds very dismissive. Uh, you know, mere emotion. No, they think that there are things like human rights um, at stake, which are not about Correct, which, yeah. which are deeply ingrained into the moral fabric of the universe. Um, and so a kind of Kantian tradition um, has it that there are some things you just cannot do to other human beings, whatever the consequences. So you just can't kill somebody, uh, even if it will save lots of lives, because because that's the sort of thing you just cannot do. Uh, a, a, a non-consequentialist approach to the world. It's not that that's being emotional. Uh, that's being... In, you know, Kant was a very rational... Right. Um, so um, so that, that's the only thing I would quibble with in your description, that, 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 that people who object to the utilitarian depiction of what you should do won't buy into the idea that they're just being emotional. They're just give, ah, okay. giving a I different see. view on, on, on how the, the moral universe behaves or should behave. Right. No, no, I, I, I accept that. I think the point I was driving at was that none of us, these, these kinds of, these, these archetypal characters uh, of, you know, someone driven only by pure reason or only by pure emotion, we don't encounter such people in the real world. No. Uh, and it's good that we don't. Uh, but since each of us struggles to one degree or another to balance these forces within us, the encounter with your particular book and the encounter with philosophical thinking and, and reasoning is something that sharpens our understanding of how these different components in our own lives, in our own personalities, in our own values, in our own communities, uh, to whatever degree we have to come together as a, as a people, as a society, uh, to make decisions and to legislate norms, uh, it's good that we should be sharpening our, our minds on the stone of such, such problems. Yes, yes, yes. The yuck factor is very interesting. The yuck factor is, for your listeners who don't know about it, I haven't heard about the yuck factor. The yuck factor is how one responds purely in a yuck way, and one can't really explain it other than a, a natural... By David Edmonds from Princeton University Press. I recommend it very highly, and again, I really encourage our listeners to visit philosophybites.com for the very engaging, always enlightening, always, always something to learn uh, from those uh, interviews with some of uh, the world's leading philosophers on bite-sized philosophical uh, topics, uh, bite-sized only in the sense that, again, in the Talmudic uh, idiom of al-regal achat, trying to summarize profundity while standing on one foot, um, the Philosophy Bites uh, podcast. And I think that our readers will really take something away from, from this book, and they might even be things that uh, can be brought in to your own uh, to your own teaching on a variety of topics having to do with values and values clarification. I should just say the book ends, uh, David. You end the you end the volume, of course, by saying that you personally would not kill the fat man, and then you pose the question to your reader: Would you? 
So it's something to think about. I would spare the fat man. Thank you very much for having me on, the, on, <laughs> on your podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Very good question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay.